James chapter 3, verse 13 on Wednesday nights. We're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we find ourselves in the book of James. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word tonight, it's such an important section of scripture. Uh, We see the war that's happening around us, what wisdom we're going to follow, the war within us of our own desire for selfishness and and pleasure, and sometimes even our our war with you. God, we know ultimately that you desire our hearts. We want to draw near to you tonight. So would you bless this study? Uh, Would you move us more in the direction of your word, of submitting our lives to your word? In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest battle is not Waterloo. It's not World War II. It's not the Civil War. It's not some of these great epic battles that we find throughout history, but it's the battle that we face every day that wages inside of us. If you remember last week, we studied in James chapter 3 our tongue, that no man can tame the tongue, that only God can tame the tongue. And now we get to go deeper into what causes us to speak the way that we do. Why do we say some of the words uh, that we do? It's because of this war going on inside of us. It's the condition of our hearts that Billy was referring to. So tonight we're going to look at a war for wisdom. There's the wisdom from God and there's the wisdom from below. The wisdom from Satan. What wisdom are you going to follow And whatever stream you're in, if you're in the stream of God's wisdom, then that's going to affect the words that you speak. But then we're going to look at the war inside of us, this war of selfishness, this war that wants to have sinful pleasure, and then the war with God, that when we're friends with the world, we're at enmity with God. But the text is really leading up to chapter 4, where we see, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In the midst of this battle and this war, God's saying, Eric, I want to be close to you. Rocky Mountain Calvary, I want to be close to you. And that's always God's intent. Back from the Garden of Eden, throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, he's always concerned with our hearts. So where's your heart tonight? When was the last time that you drew near to God to spend time with him? And what an amazing promise that no matter the struggle, no matter the compromise in our life, if we're willing to draw near to him in humility, He's more than willing to be, to draw near to us, to be close to us. So I hope tonight that this really hits us and impacts us on a heart level. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? First, war for wisdom, if you're taking notes. And the question is, who is wise and understanding among you? I think that this question is twofold. One is it's a personal challenge. You can't help but ask yourself, am I wise and understanding? Do, do I fit this? It causes us to be introspective. And would God consider me someone who's walking in wisdom and walking in, in understanding? And then it also causes us to look around and go, is there somebody that I know that I could go to who's wise and understanding? A good source for counsel. In the Proverbs, it tells us, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Do you know people of wisdom? Do you know people of understanding that you can go to and trust and trust that they're going to give you the word of God? So, so who is wise and understanding among you? And now we're going to see both fields, the, the wisdom of God and also the wisdom of the enemy. It says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done 
in the meekness of wisdom. So this is how you identify someone of wisdom and understanding is their good conduct. How do you know if someone's a good driver or not? By driving with them, by being a passenger. And you're like, you may think you're a good driver, but you are not a good driver. Or you claim to be a good driver, but you are a, you're a great driver. You really are a good, safe driver. So if we're claiming to have wisdom, if we're claiming to, to be wise, then let it show forth in your conduct. How do you treat people? What are the words that we speak? But also, it's not just the good conduct, but how we implement that good conduct. That good conduct is to be done in meekness of wisdom. Because good conduct could get really prideful very quickly, couldn't it? And you're a person of great morality, but then you're not very loving and you're not very gentle. So we're to have this good conduct in meekness. And meekness is power under control. It's self-control. It's also being aware of our own sin and our own struggles that we're going through. We see Jesus as an example of meekness. He claimed to be meek. We see Moses in the Old Testament also as a man of, of great meekness. This is not a virtue that the world looks up to. You may think of meekness as weakness, right? If someone's meek, they're weak. But no, it takes great strength to be under control, power under control. So show your good conduct by meekness of wisdom. In verse 14 But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This is the mode of earthly wisdom. This is when we know we're not in God's wisdom. When we're swimming in the wrong stream, if you have bitter envy in your heart. We think of the Ten Commandments. And the first of the Ten Commandments deal with our love for God, but then we're warned against coveting our neighbor's house, their ox, their wife, their car, their lawn, or their SUV, right? Of those Ten Commandments, there's so much warning about covetousness and and envy. And envy is bitterness to the soul. Have you ever found yourself in the privacy of your own thoughts going, man, well, I, I wish I was married to them, or I wish that my spouse was like this, or wouldn't it be great if I had that job, or drove that car, or looked this way, And before you know it, we're in that place of bitter envy. When we're going through our days in bitter envy, we're going to find words that don't glorify the Lord come out of our mouth. Agreed? We're going to find ourselves being in confusion. We're going to find ourselves being in company of of every evil work. But then also it says self-seeking. And notice it's the heart. We're dealing with the heart throughout this whole passage that our heart is set on ourselves. It's Team Eric. It's my agenda, it's my needs, it's, it's my wants. There's days that I wake up and I just find myself to be extremely selfish. I'm only thinking about myself. And then I start to feel really bad for myself and my heart and mind and have a pity party of how difficult things are uh, for me. And those are not fun days. And then there's other days where I choose to serve. I choose to put my focus on Christ and put my focus upon others, and those days are filled with peace, even if the circumstances are are difficult. As we'll see in our text, self-seeking is so destructive. It's the same Greek word in Philippians 1.17 that's translated selfish ambition. It's not the way of Christ. Christ didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. 
He came to lay down his life, to give his life as a ransom for others. The warning of verse 14 is, if we're in a place of envy and we're in a place of self-seeking, don't boast or lie against the truth. Don't try to deceive yourself. Put a spiritual spin on it that you're walking in truth. If I'm walking in envy and I'm walking in self-seeking, I'm not walking in the truth. Now, church, I want you to know how easy it is to go from one of these streams of wisdom to the other. We've talked about this before. Remember Peter? He said that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, the Father has revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Oh, this amazing revelation. Upon this rock, this profession that Jesus is the Christ, I'm going to build my church. Jesus goes on to talk about the cross. And what does Peter do? He begins to rebuke the Lord. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Why would he refer to Peter as Satan? Because Peter is now following the influence in the demonic realm. He went from worldly wisdom. We can go from a moment where we're operating in God's wisdom and the power of the Spirit, where good things are coming out of our mouth, and that it switches, doesn't it? And we flip to bitter envy and self-seeking. And so it doesn't take any time at all to jump from one to the other. Verse 15 gives us earthly wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. When there's envy and self-seeking, it's not from God, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Earthly is of this world. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of this life. God calls us to not be conformed to this world. But the world loves this type of wisdom. The earth, the earth system, the world system is filled with, with this type of wisdom. But it, it's also sensual. Sensual. We know God created sex inside of marriage to be an amazing bond of, of edification. But the world's gotten a hold of sex and uses sex to sell its message, doesn't it? Uses sensuality to, to sell self-seeking and sell envy and, and twist, twist things. We see that from our advertisements. It's like, are you selling a car or are you selling sex? I'm not sure, right? Because they want to make it, they want to make it sensual. It's been said that sex sells, unfortunately. So, so this, this wisdom is sensual, but it's also demonic. It comes right from the pit of hell. Satan's the father of lies. His mission's clear. He wants to steal, to kill, and destroy. He went to business school. He realized you've got to have a clear mission statement. He's not even that deceptive. He's selling t-shirts. I'm here to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. Just do it, right? Just, just go for it. How does he get us to that place? By get us into walking in self-seeking and bitter envy. He knows that that's going to bring destruction in our lives. In verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. This is quite a statement. This is a statement of biblical proportions. This is a colossal statement. It's huge. It's far-reaching. It's like... The love of money is the root of all kind of evil. Not money itself, but the love of, of money. That's a huge statement. And here it's saying, when there's envy and when there's self-seeking, there's going to be confusion 
and there's going to be every evil work. All kinds of sin and wickedness and rebellion, it flows out of self-seeking. It flows out of envy. Also confusion. So I've got to ask myself, we've got to ask ourselves on this Wednesday night study, is there confusion in my life? God's not the author of confusion. So if I'm with him and I'm in his word and I'm being obedient to him, there, there shouldn't be confusion. So if there's confusion in my life, why is that? Could it be because there's a lot of self-seeking? Could it be because there's some envy? And if the self-seeking were to go, if the envy were to go, then the confusion would go and the peace of God would, would come in. It's a, it's a big statement. In verse 17, now we see the source of godly wisdom, this other stream. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. This is convicting. It's, it's challenging, challenging for me. God's wisdom, the knowledge that comes from above, first, it's pure. Pure is undefiled, upright. God's never going to destroy people's lives. Why do we buy bottled water? Because it's pure, right? We're trusting that it's been filtered. Most of the time, probably it is. And we crack it up and we go, oh, this is, this is some pure water. If you live in Flint, Michigan, you're probably still buying filtered water that comes to you in a, in a bottle. And the wisdom that comes from God, it's always pure. And you can trust it even more so than bottled water. Amen? So if it's from God, it's pure. It's not going to destroy you. It's not going to destroy others. But then it's also peaceable, free from worry, peaceful spirit, because Jesus is the source of peace. God's wisdom brings freedom into our lives. So we're trying to decide and make decisions. What, what's peaceable? Where, where is there peace? In Colossians, it tells us, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule literally means inbounds or out of bounds like an umpire. If you're watching a, a volleyball match, you've got the line judge and in or out. And the peace of God saying, you know, that's in. That, I want you doing that. No, I don't want you doing that. You're, you're out of bounds. The wisdom of God is going to be peaceable. The result's going to be peace. It's gentle. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. God brings his, his wisdom to us in a way that we can receive it. Gentleness seems to be the, the nice coating that allows the medicine to go down. Children's Motrin, it tastes good, doesn't it? Why? Because if it tasted bad, kids wouldn't drink it. They wouldn't take it. It tastes so good, you've got to keep it locked up in the cabinet, right? Because they'll think it's some kind of, kind of dessert. And God, as he's giving us his wisdom, he does it with gentleness. And as we begin to walk in his wisdom, we become a person of gentleness, even in a tough situation. And that's difficult, isn't it? That takes the spirit of God and him empowering us. But God desires for us to be gentle. If Jesus was gentle, he wants us to, to be gentle. We live in a society where there's an absence of gentleness, isn't there? And this is a great thing to pray into our lives. God, make me more gentle. 
Allow me to deal with difficult things with, with gentleness. We go back to other parts of our study in the book of James that the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness. The wrath of men does not produce the righteousness of God. I switched it, I flipped it. I'm gonna flip it back, get it right. When I'm angry, God can't do his work. But when I'm gentle, I'm giving God the opportunity to do his work, full of mercy, full of mercy. What's mercy? Not giving somebody what they deserve. God has mercy that's new for us every morning because he knows we deserve judgment every morning. (laughs) But instead, he chooses to be merciful. Are you a person that's full of mercy? Do Do you extend mercy to your family, to your friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, co-workers, if we were to be honest with those that are around us, they were to be honest with us, would, you, would they describe us as a merciful person? Man, try it out. It's a great way to live. It will change your relationships. Instead of going around your house, giving everybody what they deserve, say, I'm going to give them mercy. I want to be a person who's full of mercy. This then comes together in being willing to yield being willing to yield. There's some places in town that are very difficult to yield, aren't they? Are you guys familiar with Woodman and Academy? Let's say you're on Woodman and you're going east and you decide that you're gonna get off onto Academy and come south, down, down towards, towards the church. It's a busy, busy intersection that comes right into a stoplight and there's a wrestling match, isn't there, for a willingness to yield. Is a person going to let you in? Are you going to let them in? And are you, how, How's all that going to work? And good yielding against contrary belief does take two people, right? You may slow down to let somebody come in, but then they got to hit the gas pedal, right? They got to they take it and say, I'm, I'm coming in, right? And that, it takes two people to be, to be willing to yield. Someone's got to slow down and then someone's got to speed up and here you go. And this, again, will bring us out of confusion, out of every evil thing, if we become somebody who's willing to yield. Most things are not biblical doctrine that we have to die on. Most times, we're not talking about salvation, the way that somebody goes to heaven or goes to hell, whether Jesus is God, whether the Bible is inerrant. There are those discussions, but most of the discussions in our daily life have to do with much smaller things that touch on our selfishness, that touch on our preferences, that touch on the way we want things to be and how we want our day to go. And what's happening is usually somebody in our family is stepping on our selfishness and we're saying, how dare you? You you cannot step on my selfishness. And the scripture says, be willing to yield. Married couple, are there some arguments that you've been having for decades in your marriage that really aren't over biblical issues, but now it's a power struggle. Someone's got to be right, and someone's got to be, be wrong, and so you're going to box it out. You would blow your spouse's mind in a genuine way if you began to be willing to yield. You're know, like, it doesn't really matter if they squeeze the toothpaste out of the tube from the center or they roll it up from the bottom. It doesn't really matter how the toilet paper goes on the toilet paper roll. Now, some of you are saying that is a doctrinal issue, <laughs> that that is of biblical proportions. But hey, be willing to yield, right? You just be, be flexible. Just like 
If we were to ask family member and friends and coworkers, am I a person of mercy? Another interesting question is, am, am I someone who's willing to yield? Am I willing to give somebody else preference for the sake of peace? This is all part of the wisdom of God. Without partiality, not a different standard for different people. Consistency is the hallmark of the wisdom of heaven. You're, you're going to give these things out in equal proportions to all. Without hypocrisy, striving for, I'm not teaching these things, I'm not holding others to this standard while I'm letting myself off of the hook, looking to live these things out in a genuine way. As we go through lists like this, we begin to think things like, this would be great for so-and-so. I wish that my spouse were here, or I wish my coworker were here. That knucklehead never wants to yield. And God says, no, look at yourself. Apply these things without hypocrisy. Look, look at my life first. Verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown, in peace by those who make peace. This is the result of godly wisdom. ESV version, I love the way it's translated. It's the harvest of righteousness. Now the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If we're full of mercy and we're willing to yield and we're gentle and we have the absence of self-seeking and bitter envy, do you think that that's going to result in peace in relationships? Oh, yeah. We're going to be a person who sows peace. We're going to be a person who makes peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, the children of God. Sometimes peace has to be made. The chocolate chip cookies don't make themselves, unfortunately. You at least got to go to the store and buy them, or even better, you get the ingredients Homemade chocolate chip cookies. They smell so good in the house. Who doesn't love the smell of chocolate chip cookies in the oven? And even better, the opportunity to eat them. Peace has to be made sometimes. So how do you make peace? By willing to go and admit wrong to someone. I'm sorry I've sinned against you. I'm sorry that I let you down. I'm sorry that I, I made this mistake. To own sin to own mistakes, to, to own foolishness. At times to confront, not just to let things go, and confront in gentleness and meekness for the sake of, of the relationship. Sometimes it's not the best thing to just sweep things under the rug and for the offense to become bigger and bigger. Starts with owning our own sin and then going to someone that we love and say, hey, would you please be willing to hear me out on this because I feel like this is a, affecting the relationship. But when there's peace with God and there's peace with, in relationships, isn't that a great way to live? It brings joy. It brings joy to the Lord and it brings joy to us as well. Let's go into chapter four. Why do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasures that war in your members? So we see the war for wisdom, but now we see the war from within. This is a good question. Why are there wars and fights? Why are there wars and fights in our country and in our families and in our government and sometimes even in our church? Where do these fights come from? Well, the Bible says, the scripture tells us, it's this desire for pleasure that wars in your members. That desire for pleasure, that's the self-seeking. That's, 
I've got to have what I want. The idea here is, is hedonism, where it's this feverish desire for one's own pleasure or gratification. It's the way our culture lives. It's the way our country lives. I'm going to get whatever I want. It's not that all pleasure's bad. God designed pleasure. He desired things to be enjoyed for his glory. But this is when we have pleasure as an idol, where we're serving pleasure, we're bowing down to pleasure, and it's that self-seeking, and it causes war inside of us, causes war and fighting with others. In verse 2, you lust and you do not have, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do, do not have because you do not ask. You lust and you do not have. When we get down this road of sinful pleasure, it's emptiness. There's no satisfaction. We're never fulfilled in a lustful attitude. Lust is always false advertisement. Once you get this, you'll be satisfied. But as soon as you get it, you're not satisfied. And you're left going, this is emptiness. There's got to be more. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes is a great picture and a great understanding of of what happens when we lust and, and we don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You go so far in this desire for pleasure that murder is committed, but yet you, you don't attain. You don't get what you're looking for. You fight and you war. I wonder how many wars that have taken place on a national, international level and the end of it, they're like, what have we gained? All this loss of life, and, wh- and what have we gained? I know that there's a lot of times in our lives where we just fight it out. We fight it out with God and we fight it out in relationships that really matter. And at the end of it, we're like, what have, what have I gained? All I've really done is just trash somebody, hurt somebody that I really loved and hurt God's heart. And the end of verse two says, but you don't have because you don't ask. The whole time God's with us. This is written to believers saying, hey, why don't you ask me? What you're looking for is me. What you're longing for is me. Why don't you turn to me? I'm the one who satisfies. I'm the one who can can meet you. You don't ask. You you don't have because you don't ask. And then when you do ask, verse 3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're, We're busy looking to everything else. We finally look to the Lord and we're really just asking God to fulfill our selfish pleasures. Do you ever tell your kids no? Yes, you do, right? Why? Because you know it's not good for them. Like, this is just going to feed into their selfishness. So I need to tell them no here. And God will tell us no. Sometimes we're coming to God and we're rubbing him like he's a giant genie just wanting him to give us what we want, but we're not desiring a relationship with him and we're not desiring his will. He's ready to give if we don't ask amiss. If we come to him saying, God, I want a deeper relationship with you. Sincerely, genuinely, I want your will. A lot of times this is a wrestle of our will. We're not ready to surrender our will. Not my will, but but your will be done. Now, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, a war with God. Ultimately, this boils down to a war with God. Yes, it's a war about wisdom. It's a war within. 
But ultimately, who am I really fighting here? I'm fighting the Lord. Who confronts my selfishness? The Lord. And why would God call his church adulterers and adulteresses? Because they've given their love to something or someone else other than the Lord. It's a misplaced love. So God rightly calls them adulterers and adulteresses, spiritual adultery. It's a message that God gives in the Old Testament to the children of Israel. How many times in our lives have we found ourselves there if we're honest? We go, man, I've given my love to something other than the Lord. Could I say that God's my first love? God calls us out on this. He says, if you're friends with the world, then you're enmity with God. James is very black and white. He's like, if you want the world, and you're loving the world, and you're serving yourself, and envy's filled your heart, then you're not the friend of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't be the friend of the world and and the friend of God. And in fact, you're actually at enmity with God. You know, if you're wondering what enmity is, look at North Korea right now to the rest of the world. North Korea is at enmity with the rest of the world. And we put ourselves in opposition to God when we're friends with the world. He wants us all in. He wants our hearts totally and completely. And I love verse 5. It says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is the love of God. And he puts the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the Holy Spirit is never content for second place. And so if we've put other things above the Lord, the Holy Spirit is moving inside of us and is yearning jealously that we would get right with the Lord. It's like a a spouse. A spouse, in a godly sense, has jealousy. Saying, look, no, your love shouldn't go to somebody else. I'm the one and only. In the same way, God's saying, no, I'm the one and only. I'm the first and the foremost. So that's what the Lord is doing, and that's what the Lord is stirring. Could it be that God is calling us back to him tonight? He's saying, ask some of the hard questions. Is my job more important to me than my relationship with the Lord? Is my family more important to me than my relationship with the Lord? Is money more important than my relationship with the Lord? Is ministry more important than a relationship with the Lord? And God's saying, okay, where, where is it really at? And that stirring that takes place inside, inside of us. We see the pathway to peace in these last few verses. All of this war and this conflict that I think we can really re- relate to. But how does it result in peace? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Did I just read that correctly? Does your Bible say that? But he gives more grace? That's absolute ludicrous right there. That's crazy talk. We got crazy town down the hall with Awana happening with the kids, and we got crazy talk happening right here. I mean, there's so much conviction in what we've read in chapter 3 with the way we talk, the wisdom of the world that we live in, the bitter envy and the self-seeking, the pleasures, the sinful pleasures inside of us, the enmity with God. Everything logically would say in verse 6 that God kicks your teeth in. You know? He's like, man, get your act together. But instead, the way he pursues us to win our hearts is he gives more grace. 
Grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Because of the words we've spoke, because of the selfishness inside of our hearts, Jesus died upon the cross. And God never stops giving grace. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He gives more grace in a way that people never would. In my devotions right now, I'm reading through the book of Hosea, the Minor Prophets. It's a very strong book. The very beginning, God speaks and says, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, marry a harlot. And Hosea gets up, and he does it right away. And by the time you're in verse 4, they've got kids. And God says, this, this is what you're to name your child. We're talking immediate obedience from Hosea the prophet. Israel was an idolatry before the Lord. They were the harlot. They were the prostitute. And God was giving a message of his unconditional love to the children of Israel. He gives more grace. And God speaks throughout the book of Hosea, come back to me, return to me. God's pursuing us in his grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. He takes the opposing position. Well, what's a prideful heart? A prideful heart is one where we fail to see our sin. We fail to see our brokenness. We're not broken over our words. We're not broken over our self-seeking. We're not broken over and we're proud. Say, God, I got my act together. I don't understand this grace thing. I don't need your grace. Just give me what I deserve. Woo! Look out, right? But yet our hearts are so independent of God so many times. How many days do I go through without really relying upon the Lord or, or looking to the Lord? When we think about God, he's the creator of the universe, his ability to oppose, wow. If there's one person that we don't want to be opposed to us, it's God. And he will resist the proud. We're studying Nebuchadnezzar on Saturdays and Sundays. And the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar's life is that God knows how to humble the proud. He gets the last word over the proud. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is God's sweet spot. You know what I'm talking about. I got a sweet spot with my kids. You know, I got three daughters. When they look at me with those big brown eyes and they're like, Dad, and they get that tone just right, I think little girls, you don't have to teach them that, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, you got my sweet spot going here. And then all three of them get going together and I'm just, I'm melted, right? I'm just done, I'm done for. That's my sweet spot. Then they get mom involved and little brother to boot and there you go, we're going to ice cream. There it is. And God, in a good way, he can't resist. He chooses not to. He could if he wanted to, but he chooses not to resist somebody who's humble and broken. God is desiring a broken and contrite spirit. One that realizes their sin, one that cries out to God for help. I wonder how long the Lord just waits for us to cry out and say, God, please help. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. My days are just filled with fighting. They're filled with conflict. They're filled with confusion. I, everywhere I go, I'm making a mess of things. God, please help. I'm ready to do it your way. And he just is ready to pour out grace upon the humble. In verse seven, therefore submit to God. 
Submit to God. Humility yields to God. Humility allows God to take control of our lives. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, we do not like to submit to authority. There's something in our sinful flesh that says, I don't want to be brought under the control of any. That's pride. But humility says, God, I'm ready to come underneath your authority. I'm ready to submit myself to you. I'm ready to yield myself to you. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan's going to attack as you're submitting to God, but hold your ground because in the Lord and the power of his might, Satan will flee. You don't turn and run from Satan. You stand your ground in the Lord. You use the armor that God has provided. If you want to study this more, write down Ephesians chapter 6, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then we get to the key verse of our text, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. In that current condition of struggle with sin, this is written to believers who are struggling with sin. They're struggling with the world, just like we do, the world's wisdom. They're struggling with their own selfishness. They're fighting with each other, making a mess of things. And God says, hey, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. He doesn't say clean up your act first and then I'll draw near to you. Look at with me the rest of verse eight. It says, cleanse your hands, your, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Logical perspective would be clean yourself up, then draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. But instead, God says, no, come to me just as you are. I'll clean you up. I'll purify your heart. I lived in Idaho for about a year. When I got done with uh, school ministry, I was in Idaho and volunteering at Calvary Chapel, Nampa. And in that time in Idaho, there was a a lot of dairy farms. And there was a, a particular family that came to the church that owned a dairy farm. And they would do stuff for the young adults and have the young adults over for free food. Young adults can't resist that. And so we would go over and Eat, eat all this food, and they had a really beautiful dog, a golden retriever. And if you've ever spent time at, at a dairy, a lot of times the dairy and the house are really close together because it's so much work to milk these cows. And then these cows, all of their poop goes into a big cesspool, and it stinks. There's no way around it. The milk is good, but the smell is rotten. And as you're driving up to the house in the summertime, it's just this, if you're not used to it, you're like, wow, this, this is powerful. Well, the golden retriever loved to swim in the cesspool. And as a good golden retriever, this dog would just, just love to, to come up to you and want to, want to play and jump on you and want all this affection. I know this might surprise you guys, but I'm not a big animal person to begin with, right? So, so here comes this nasty, stinky, smelly dog that wants to jump all over me. And I'm like, no, not today. Not, you, you go take a bath. Let's, let's hose you off somewhere. And then I'll play with you. But when you smell like this, I'm not playing with you, right? And see, God could do that. God could be like, you know what? Just get yourself all put together. Get cleaned up. Once you get your act together, then draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And I think a lot of times we think that that's what God expects. 
But God is ready for us to draw near to him in the midst of our sinful state. And we really have to, we really need to, because he's the one who cleanses us. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us, and then cleanse your hands. We're in relationship with God. We're now with the Father, and we're saying, Father, these hands have done things that they should not have done. They don't glorify you and confess our sin. And what happens when we confess our sin to our Father? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's able to cleanse our hands. We're with our Father, and we're saying, you know, this really comes out of a heart that's not right, a heart that's hard, a heart that's selfish. And would you please change my heart? Would you purify my heart? Would you take this heart of stone and make it soft and make it a heart heart of flesh? I'm double-minded. Would you cause me to have singular focus? In verse 9, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This is understanding God's love, understanding God's forgiveness, and also understanding the weight of our sin and being broken before the Lord. And weeping and mourning. Not making it a laughing matter. Not going, well, this is just the way our culture is. Boys will be boys and girls will be girls. or This is the way they've always been. To, to be in that place of really being broken before God. Understanding God in a greater way and really having lasting change in our lives, doesn't it always flow through brokenness? I mean, until we're broken, there's not a lot that changes. Things don't really move in a direction of being closer to God and, and closer to others. But man, when we get to this place, the Lord works. And I gotta tell you, I believe the Spirit of God loves this. Because God loves us and the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit just starts to soften our hearts and causes us to realize the way we're treating people, how it hurts the heart of God. Maybe the way we're treating our spouse or our kids or our coworker, he begins to reveal our pride to us and our selfishness. Oh, I don't realize this about myself. We want to run away from it, but instead of running away from it, we cry out to the Lord and we receive his forgiveness, but it comes through brokenness. And we end with this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble pie sometimes doesn't taste very good. Like, this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I don't, I don't want to eat any humble pie. I don't want to humble myself in the sight of God. I don't want to come underneath God, God's hand. But what a beautiful place to be. There's a sweetness and brokenness as we humble ourselves in God's sight. Verse 9 is humbling. To be broken before the Lord is humbling. To express our sin and our brokenness before him, that's humbling. And as we humble ourselves in his sight, then he will lift us up. Is there a war of wisdom in your life? As you look at James chapter 3, do you go, man, I sure have been given in to the wisdom of this world, this demonic wisdom. Is there a war inside of you? Did you find yourself in that place of selfishness and 
seeking after those sinful pleasures? And is there a war with God? But this is the heart of God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And as we take communion tonight, to really enter in, Jesus has paid the price upon the cross, his death and his resurrection, to where as we come to the communion table, we can come to the very throne room of God. We can draw near to him. I want to go there for just a moment, okay? In my life and in our lives together, there can be a part of us that has really good habits of seeking the Lord, but we're not seeking the Lord. We can get up every day and read our Bible and have the word of God go in one ear and out another and not meet with God and not draw near to God. How do I know that? Because at times I do that. At times I'm reading and I'm going through a routine, but I'm not drawing near to God with my heart. So in result, God's not drawing near to me. He knows. He's waiting for me to give him my attention. And when I give God my attention, he's more than ready to fulfill that promise and and draw near. We can get good at coming to church. And I'm so thankful for the Wednesday night crew. You you guys are here on a Wednesday night on the midst of a busy week and you've made the priority to get here and get get your family here. But if we're not careful... We can go through service after service after service. And maybe we're tired. Who knows? But we're not drawing near to God. The songs are happening, but I'm not engaged in the songs. The word's being spoken, but my heart's not hungry for the word. Communion's being shared, but, but I'm not, my heart, my heart's not entering into it. And you know what? I think God in his love goes, you know, I'm really not about your church attendance. There may be a Wednesday night where you go, you know what? I just need to sit in the parking lot and seek God. It's been a long time since I've drawn near to him and you're feeling this false guilt because you weren't in here listening to a Bible study. You know? God doesn't look at our report card and go, oh, you read through the Bible this year, so I'm going to draw near to you. He he wants this. He wants heart. And you think about the way that God's ready to respond. You think about it as as a loving parent that's always ready for relationship and willing to talk. They're waiting for the phone to ring. But we're too busy to call them. So there they are. Maybe an elderly parent that's sitting at home in the lazy boy waiting for us to call. And we're like, man, I haven't heard from mom and dad for a while. And they're just waiting. They're saying, hey, call. I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to be in relationship with you. It's the spouse who has a distracted spouse where the spouse, all they do is work. They've always found a reason to work. I'm working, 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 working. I'm busy, 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 busy. And the spouse is just saying, I'm just waiting for you to call and ask me how my day was. I'm just waiting for you at the end of the day to have 20 minutes to be able to pursue pursue my heart. They're ready. They're just waiting. 
I, I picture a, a young kid coming up to a parent with a basketball saying, hey, dad, you want to shoot hoops? I, I, I got to go. I got I to gotta do this. They're like, okay, well, any time, any time you're ready, I'm ready. Like, I'm ready to play basketball anytime you're ready. Like, they're given the signal, right? And here we have God, the creator of the universe, saying, hey, Eric, I'm ready. Dial me up. My phone line's open. The couch is open. The basketball court's open. I've made this invitation for you. Now come and receive that invitation. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I'm humbled by your word. Lord, I'm humbled by the condition of my heart. And Lord, I know all too well how easy it is to be in even good routines, but not necessarily be close to you. And everything flows out of that. Everything flows out of our hearts being knit together with your heart. And we thank you, no matter what the struggle is, no matter how bad the sin is, that you invite us to your table tonight, to your table of grace. You give more grace. You want fellowship with us. And though it may be difficult, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want to acknowledge our sin. We want to take the time to be broken, to weep, to mourn. And in the midst of that, that you would lift us up, that you would restore. Take us back to that first love. Take us back to that close fellowship with you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.